This program is brought to you by Haymarket Books as part of the Socialism 2022 program. You can hear more recorded sessions from the conference by subscribing to the Socialism Conference podcast feed. Many video recordings are also available at socialismconference.org. If you enjoy these recordings, keep an eye on socialismconference.org for updates about the next Socialism Conference and how you can participate. You can help support the Haymarket Project by buying books at haymarketbooks.org and especially by joining the Haymarket Book Club. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast and the Haymarket YouTube channel to access all of our upcoming events. If you really want to help us out, rate and review the podcast on Apple or whatever platform you're listening on. All right. Thank you so much, Naomi. I really appreciate that. Thank, thanks to all the organizers and sponsors of the conference. It's great to see that you all made it to my session, even if I didn't. <laughs> I, I really wish so much that I could be there with you all. I am struggling with long COVID. Um, so I just couldn't make it there physically. I hope I can make it through <laughs> mentally. I'm, I'm definitely dealing with fatigue and dizziness, but I really wanted to participate in the conference this year and I'm grateful for the opportunity. So I'm Skyping in here to you all from my hometown of Seattle, occupied Duwamish territory. I'm in a city that's named after a Duwamish chief. And yet because of broken treaty of Point Elliot, the Duwamish people still don't even have federal recognition. And, and get this, in a lot of states, you lose your job at school for pointing out that the U.S. systematically stole indigenous land and then broke treaties with native peoples. That's how off-chart this attack on truth has become, right? We are in a moment that really explains what Carter G. Woodson talked about when he developed the concept of education. And we are really seeing a miseducation used by the owning class to shape schools and our society. And so last summer, I began writing a book about the attack on critical race theory and anti-racist pedagogy. And soon after I began writing, my dad, Gerald Renoir, made a discovery that really left me shaken. And it altered the lives of a lot of people in my family, because after years of investigating our genealogy, he finally came across documentation that revealed the plantation, the Lenoir plantation, that our family had been enslaved on in Morgantown, Mississippi. So this was a profound moment for me, you know, learning the exact location of the enslavers who stole my family's freedom really reified enslavement for me in a way, and I, I realized slavery had been abstract in many ways for me until that moment. <laughs> and he also discovered one of our favorite blues artists, J.B. Lenoir was enslaved, his family was enslaved on the same plantation, which was incredible for me as a blues harmonica player. Uh, it was quite a revelation, and it, it made my great-great-grandmother 
is life so much more real for me. Lopre Lenoir was born on that plantation in 1844. And she was married to my great-great-grandfather, Thomas Lenoir, who was born into slavery as well, and birthed 19 children. Wow. It was incredible to to finally know where she had been enslaved. And then a few weeks after that discovery, my dad uh, sent me an email that made the experience much more real. I opened the attachment and on a sepia-toned image with overexposed edges, an image popped up of a two-story big house with French window that opened onto a balcony. And on that balcony stood five people, five white people who had enslaved my family, who had tortured and beaten. And there were moments there that was just hard for me to, to even explain to you all. But my bewilderment subsided enough for me to regain awareness of where I was and what I was looking at. I zoomed in to try to see the faces of those people, but they were too blurred for me to see much. And I just sat there trying to confront the people who had inflicted generations of pain and trauma on my ancestors and on my family today passed down through generations. And, you know, it, my pulse begins. I couldn't breathe very well in that moment. I couldn't understand this new emotion that was overwhelming me, some kind of mixture of sorrow and fear and, and fury. And I just sat there weeping for a while. My body needed to release all of it. And I couldn't even vocalize words. I didn't know what to say. I just started shouting into the empty room. Maybe I, I want to frighten those enslavers in the picture. I don't know. Maybe I, I was hoping that that cry would, would reach my ancestors and so they would know they weren't forgotten. But I think a lot of that anger that came out was because I knew that there was a powerful campaign being organized to hide what I was looking at from my students, to deny the fact that my family was enslaved and that millions of other black people's families were enslaved and formed the source of profit that built the U.S. economy. And that feeling of state power trying to erase and deny something that you know to be so deeply true, both intellectually and in your bones, is just a feeling that's hard to describe. And that experience led me to make this promise to you all today. No matter how much power or money these politicians have to misdirectful understanding of the past, the unvarnished truth, is that my family was enslaved on plantations in Mississippi and in Louisiana, and no matter what the threats are or the consequences, I will never betray my ancestors by hiding this fact to the students that I teach, the educators that I mentor. 
and, and the fact that this country was founded on enslavement, it was founded on the genocide of Native people, and I also won't hide the fact from my students that black and indigenous people have engaged in creative and joyful forms of resistance all throughout history and today. And people should know that today some 42 states have introduced legislation or enacted policies that seek to require teachers to lie to students about structural racism, sexism, homophobia. 17 states have already actually imposed these anti-history laws, and it's not just in the South. New Hampshire has these laws. Iowa has these laws, right? And in the boundless satire that is the United States of America, Juneteenth, the oldest commemoration of the ending of slavery, became a federal holiday at the same time it became illegal to teach about it in many places, including in Texas where the holiday originated. So as we speak, more than 17.7 million public school students enrolled in almost 900 districts across the country are impacted by educational gag order restrictions. They have passed laws to restrict the 1619 project, the Zen Education Project that, that I for the Black Lives Matter at School movement has also become one of the primary targets of this attack. And 15 states are considering homophobic and transphobic bills in the legislative session that would impact what can be taught about sexuality and gender. And so you might have thought that the dystopian story that you shuddered at once was fantastical. Maybe the firemen who burned books in Fahrenheit 451, or the state that declared ignorance and strength in 1984. But I want you to consider those stories alongside the children's story of America 2022. There are physical attacks on educators who are teaching the truth. A March 2022 study revealed that 6 10 educators have experienced physical or verbal aggression during this era, in part related to anger over teaching about racism. And the threats against educators uh, from opposition to mask mandate and teaching about structural racism reached such a level of crisis that the National School Board Association wrote an open letter to President Biden asking for federal intervention to stop the threat and physical attacks on educators and school board members. Right? You all know about the book bans. More than 1,500 book bans have been enacted in the U.S., mostly against uh, authors of color and LGBTQ plus authors, right? Educators in Tennessee and Florida and Texas and Missouri and beyond have actually fired for teaching what Republicans have erroneously labeled critical race theory, right? Really just anything... Uh, from any tradition of anti-racism, mentioning white privilege got a got Matthew Holland fired in Tennessee. Uh, Amy Dorofonio was fired in Texas, uh, fired in 
Florida at Rock, this, he taught at Robert E. Lee High School, a genocidal maniac, right, who killed countless people in order to maintain slavery. This is a school named after him, and she thought maybe she needed to support her black students. She had a, a son that said Black Lives Matter in her school and was fired for it. Just in March, uh, a teacher was fired for teaching the YA book Dear Martin about boyhood corresponds with Martin Luther King. It's off the chart. Legislation has been introduced to impose something straight out of 1984, some big brother uh, surveillance where they want teachers to wear king clothes in the classroom to catch them teaching the truth. The Texas Board of Education had a subcommittee proposed replacing slavery with the phrase involuntary relocation. Another district in Texas, at a teacher training, proposed that teachers could not teach about the Holocaust in a one-sided manner and needed to teach opposing views of the Holocaust. What a despicable, anti-Semitic, horrific statement on the attack on the Gorgias theory. They are banning books about Ruby Bridges, a kindergartner who integrated her school, right? And Martin Luther King isn't even spared for book bans. It, it's, it's absurd. They're bringing us back to 1950s Cold War McCarthy-era attack on educators. You know, one of the clearest examples is in New Hampshire where they're actually trying to revive the McCarthy-era loyalty oath pledge for educators. And in that state as well, Moms Liberty put a bounty on teachers, but they call a quote-unquote bounty on teachers so that parents could turn in teachers and they would give $500 to the first person who would pop teaching truth about structural racism. The attacks are so absurd that the only way to understand them, the only news source to turn to to understand them is the reputable sort of the onion. <laughs> did, did people see the January headline? Quote, school calendar jumps to March 1 after critical race theory ban prohibits the month of February. <laughs> Seattle's version of the onion, if you haven't checked it out, it's, it's the needling. They had an equally important article with the headline, quote, Florida bans the letters LGBTQ from the alphabet. <laughs> as absurd as these headlines are, the reality is more outrageous. I want to spend a minute uh, explaining why I think this attack is happening now. And uh, what I think we need to do about it. I think there are four major factors to consider for why this intense attack on teaching the truth about racism and oppression is happening. The first is the backlash to the 2020 uprising, 
for black lives and the needs of the ruling class to divide and conquer. The 2020 uprising freaked out the billionaire class in this country who rely on racism to maintain their power, and they quickly look for ways to reassert their control over society. Remember, police precincts were burning to the ground. Police were being chased out of schools city after city. Defund the police was a mainstream conversation. <laughs> uh, sports teams were having to change their names to no longer be openly racist. And so their first tactic was to support bills to outlaw the right to protest. But when Christopher Rufo packaged up everything ruling class bigots fear into one nice term, critical race theory, the Koch brothers and Donald Trump and other billionaires quickly provided a platform to attack anti-racist education and, and critical race theory. And the irony, of course, is that the attack on critical race theory proves the central claim of the theory, right? One of the most important claims of critical race theory is that racism is embedded in the law even when it appears to use race-neutral language. Check. We're seeing that in legislative bills across the country. Number two, uh, any progress in racial justice will be met with a white supremacist backlash text, so they're proving theory correct. I think a second reason why we're seeing this attack on the truth is the election strategy of the Republican Party. Right? They are trying to rally their base. They know that Increasingly, young people favor socialism over capitalism. Increasingly, our, our country is becoming more uh, people of color. Uh, and so their strategy is voter suppression, gerrymandering, and rallying their base by trying to convince white people that teachers are trying to shame their children for being white and attacking trans uh, children uh, and families as well. The third reason this attack is happening is because the forces of neoliberalism are very clear that this attack on critical race theory is about defunding education and turning the school system into a mishmash of voucher programs and charter schools. Okay? Christopher Bedford, a senior editor at The Federalist, explained the larger aims of the critical rate of critical this attack on critical race theory very clearly. Right? He said the quiet part out loud. He said, quote, every year this country spends six hundred and forty billion on public K twelve education and a huge share of that money is going to people with evil ideas who want to poison your children to think the same way. So what's the solution? The answer is to think bigger. Here's what we should do. Defund the schools for real. You might be surprised by this, but there wasn't a mass mobilization of parents chanting defund the schools in the street after he issued this communique. 
But the last reason I think that this attack is happening is really the most important. This is about reproduction of capital, and it's about a drive for epistemicide. The reproduction of capitalism generation to generation requires an education system that normalizes the current social relation and normalizes oppression and exploitation. And because racism is so foundational to the capitalist system, racist education has been a critical tool for reproducing this system. And moreover, there has long been a section of the ruling class that is dissatisfied with just the normal functioning of the education system that however imperfectly is organized generally to produce obedient workers who will accept their position as laborers. These radical billionaires are interested in wholesale epistemicide, which is the killing, the silencing, or annihilation of entire systems of knowledge. We need to understand the history of, ep of these epistemicidal sections of the ruling class to understand the current attacks on critical race theory. Because as extreme as the current attacks are with anti-racist education, it's important to contextualize this in the history of the attacks throughout history, uh, throughout the history of racial capitalism. So that's what I want to tackle here in my time remaining. The forces of capitalist accumulation, of colonization, of white supremacy have long been interested in the project of obliterating the ability of people to imagine a better world. And any system of thought that would help them achieve that goal. From the conquistadors, who burned almost every single Mayan text, right? To the American government that set up Native American boarding schools that stripped indigenous children of their language and their culture. To the mandatory illiteracy laws for enslaved Africans. To the burning down of hundreds of schools during Reconstruction, this country has long attempted the practice of epistemicide. Black education has been under attack since African people were first kidnapped and brought to, to the Americas. And there is a reason for this. Black education has always posed a threat to the American order. Enslavers attempt, attempted to erase the memories of collective resistance to slavery and also of their African heritage. Right? They didn't want black people to know that they came from a societies that found science and literature and arts. It's just about every human endeavor. And really, how could educating black people ever not have been a menace to this country? After all, think about it. What would befall a nation which Fired into existence with Patrick Henry's refrain, give me liberty or give me death, and then simultaneously convene black people together in schoolhouses to teach them those very words and, and grant them the space to reflect on the meaning of those words or, or deal 
with their own predicament. And that is why black education has always been viciously attacked. And one of the first major attacks on black education occurred in, the, in South Carolina in the wake of the Stono Rebellion. On Sunday, September 9, 1739, an enslaved man from Angola named Jemmy launched that Stono Rebellion in South Carolina. And Jemmy and other Africans assembled on the Stono River, and they hoisted a baker that simply read liberty. And so began the largest revolt of enslaved people in South Carolina's history and the largest uprising in the British colonies before the American Revolution. The enslaver read Jeff Banner that proclaimed liberty, and they responded. They responded not only by murdering all of the rebels, but also by attempting to kill the ability of black people to ever write or think that word again. It was then the first cause pact meant literacy. The aim was not just to assassinate the insurrectionists, but to exterminate African ideas of interdependence, of collective struggle altogether. Now, South Carolina did allow one kind of school. These were the, the first time that mandatory illiteracy laws were passed. They wanted, there was severe punishments for people caught teaching black people how to read or write. But they did allow one kind of school to form. And those were schools that enslavers created with the mission of raising black children to both reject the idea that they were oppressed and accept their subordination. Really not all that dissimilar to the vision of modern uh, racists who are packing off to prohibit schools from allowing students to discuss ideas like white privilege or systemic racism. As the scholar and poet Flint Smith described of these antibellum attempts at mind control, he said, quote, Schools were established in South Carolina to indoctrinate enslaved people with this ideology infused <clears throat> interpretations of Christianity. These, quote, schools taught black people to believe in the institution of slavery and that it was ordained by God and should not be challenged. These schools were more accurately what I call racial control academies, right? Which is really the model that's been maintained through to this day. When you see schools that over-disciplining black kids and teach them to accept the humiliation and subordination that they endure, uh, these are the racial control academies. You might know them by another name, Names like No Excuse Charters that Eva Moskowitz set up. Well, she calls them success academies, though. Right? Well, the attack on, on black education is not new, right? My ancestors were banned from being able to read and write. But they didn't accept that. They snuck off plantations to teach each other how to read and write. You know it was illegal. 
They called it stealing the meat. The punishment could be maiming. People lost fingers. If you were caught reading or writing, some people were, were killed. Who were caught being liberate. But black people resisted anyway. During the Reconstruction era, black educators built the public education system in the South because they knew there was no emancipation without education. As the scholar Kadada Williams put it, quote, right from the start of Reconstruction, newly free people, children and adults alike, flooded the schools. Sometimes the school was a church. Sometimes it was a teacher's living room. Sometimes it was a patch of grass. And school got canceled when it rained. And you should know that terror violent for youth against educators, black and white, who dared to educate black children during Reconstruction. Reconstruction. And Edmina Highgate recalled of her time teaching, she said, quote, in Reconstruction, she said, quote, there has been much opposition to the school. Twice I have shot at in my room. My night scholars have been shot, but none killed. The nearest military protection is 200 miles distant at New Orleans. Even the Freedmen Bureau agent has been absent for near a month, but I trust fearlessly in God and I am safe. Frederick Douglass wrote that, quote, schoolhouses are burned, teachers are mobbed and murdered, schools broken up, and in fact, white supremacists burned down over 600 schools throughout the South during Reconstruction. But black people didn't give up. In some instances, they rebuilt their schools three or four times. I mean, you have to know epic struggle for black education. Carter G. Woodson's Association for the Study of African American Life and History, founding Negro History Week, which later became Black History Month, the NAACP partnering with the New York Teachers Union in the 30s to replace textbooks that glorified the KKK with anti-racist books, the freedom schools during the Civil Rights Movement, Mississippi Freedom Summer of 1964, where they got some 3,000 black students to attend these freedom schools, and the final exams were not some meaningless, high-stakes, standardized tests, but it was going to register to vote or organizing other people into the struggle into the Mississippi Freedom Democratic Party. There was the proliferation of Afrocentric schools in the 60s and 70s, the Black Panther Party Liberation Schools, uh, and the Oakland Community School run by Erica Huggins. You know, today we have the movement for police-free schools and restorative justice, ethnic studies, black studies, Black Lives Matter at school, this is the uninterrupted struggle for black education that's taken place in, in this country that persists to this day. And I just want to uh, wrap, begin to wrap up here by saying that I recount history to reveal how hard they have tried throughout history to make school a place that inflict what Professor Henry Giroux calls the violence of organized forgetting. 
Giroux describes the violence of organized forgetting as an effort by elites to hide vital lessons of the past that could empower social movements, such as historical legacies of resistance to racism, militarism, privatization, and, and, and more. And given the severity of the intellectual violence that has been inflicted on black people and indigenous people, working class people, people of color in this country, we have to defend ourselves. And I want to propose to you all that we need to defend ourselves with what I call the healing of organized remembering. The healing of organized remembering our collective efforts in schools, but also in social movements to recover vital historical lessons about challenges to injustice that have been purposely concealed from us. This organized remembering on its own is not enough to create a society built on racial and economic and social justice, but the healing of organized remembering coupled with collective action can help our social movements greatly. And I think our, our movements need help. We have seen them all throughout my lifetime. I've tried to participate in as many struggles as, as I could possibly think of. And I've seen them go up like a rocket and then fall like a rock to the ground over and over again. We need our social movements to be more sustainable, more robust, to have a bigger vision, larger goals for transforming society. And to do that, we have to recover these historical lessons that they are trying to hide from us. You know, today's racists aren't so bold as to ban the reading of the word as they did to my ancestors, but they are trying to ban the reading of the world as Paulo Freire described it. And I'll be damned if I'm gonna sit back and watch that happen. So let me be clear, as scary as their attack is right now on our schools, they wouldn't be trying to ban our ideas if our ideas weren't having an impact, if we weren't making a difference, if they weren't worried that our ideas were true and might actually connect with millions of people across the country and the world that can't stand the system anymore. You know, more people are are joining the struggle to unionize their workplace and educators and unions uh, encourage you to hold Teach Truth Days of Actions. Participate in the Black Lives Matter at School Week of Action and our Year of Purpose. Everyone can join the State Education Project uh, work. We have monthly forums on teaching the black freedom struggle and we have an annual June 12th day of action. These are all important steps towards a much bigger struggle that is yet to come. But there is just, I just want to end by saying, can be sure that a bigger struggle is coming. There are just too many overlapping crises in our society today. The onset of stagflation in the economy that's happening. 
Cops that continue to murder black people, impunity. The climate crisis. Jacksonville doesn't have any water, for God's sake. Right? We have a COVID pandemic, a housing crisis, so many overlapping crises, and you can be sure that the uprising 2020 is only a prelude to a much bigger eruption of, of people that refuse to live like this anymore. And I want you to dream for a minute. What if in the next round of struggle, young people make connections around the country and form a national organization like the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee did for the Civil Rights Movement? And what if that national organization began to find common struggles and analysis and common targets for their struggle? And what if they decided that all the youth jails in this country all the cages that lock up kids had to stop. What if they surrounded those youth jails and laid siege to them in every city across the country? And then what if their teachers supported them? What if, what if we backed them up in protests or even went on strike in support of their action? What if young workers who were organizing Starbucks and Amazon uh, said that they were right and joined the campaign? Because when we begin to connect the power of street protests with the power of labor and unions, then we will no longer have to beg anymore. We will no longer have to ask them to stop separating migrant kids from their families on the border. Right? When we connect the power of labor with the power of social movements, we will no longer have to ask them to stop criminalizing trans kids and their families. We will no longer have to ask them to stop building jails for kids or banning books about the truth of black history. We will no longer have to accept the society as it is and we can start remaking it as we know it should be. And I'll just end with the words of probably my favorite educator, Septima Clark called the mother of the civil rights movement by Martin Luther King, and she said, quote, I believe unconditionally in the ability of people to respond when they are told the truth. We need to be taught to study rather than to believe, to inquire rather than to affirm. Thank you. Thanks for listening. If you like this episode, subscribe to our podcast and to the Haymarket Books YouTube channel, where events like this one are hosted live. And don't forget to check out haymarketbooks.org.